reading from selection, sections of Exodus 13 and 14, and you can follow along on the screen as I read the passage out loud. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. When the king of, of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what on earth, oops, I, I threw that in there, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariots made ready and he took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with the other chariots of Egypt with the officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us to bring us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would be, have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord that the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You will only need be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the waters so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry land. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them and I will gain glory through, the, through Pharaoh and all his army though through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry land with a, water of wall, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. Whoa, but look what looks what's happening. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of, of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived, but the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with the wall of water on the right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared God and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant.
That's the Lord's, that's God's word. There's this uh, place in Matthew's gospel, in uh, chapter 12 of Matthew's gospel, where Jesus seems to be sharing a parable about uh, a demonic deliverance. Uh, He says that there are times when someone is freed from something only to be worse off in the end. Actually, the way Jesus says it is that uh, an impure spirit through, we don't really know the the background, it's just kind of like in the middle of a parable he's, he's given to the Pharisees, he says that, uh, that there's deliverance that happens and then an impure spirit or a demon or something like impure leaves this person. But this spirit kind of floats around and has nowhere to go, so it goes back to its host home, the person, and finds that the house, their life, is clean and swept. And so the demon goes to get seven of its friends and then moves back in. It's a strange parable but one that makes sense if you ever felt like you were getting free from something, only for that thing you were getting freedom from to come back seven times stronger than before. So today what I'd like to talk about in this series is what it's like to leave something. It could be something that you love but realize is destroying you. It could be something that you hate but is becoming so familiar to you that you don't know what life would look like without that thing in your life. What I want to talk about is what it means to be free, spiritually free, truly free, to be free from whether it's an addiction, a destructive relationship, maybe a damaging habit, or even a a disorder. To put it in the categories of last week, to be free from sin or to be free from spiritual bondage. What does that feel like to be free? If you know anything about being free from something that has held you down for any length of time or destroyed part of your life, you know that freedom is a process. Spiritual freedom is a process. It takes time. Freedom is a journey from one place to another place, from uh, addiction to sobriety, from codependence to interdependence, from death to life, from one way of being and relating and living to another way of being and relating and living. And when you're leaving that thing, whatever that thing is, that habit, that relationship, that old part of your life, sometimes you look back. Sometimes your newfound freedom is so scary, you wanna run back to the safety of what is familiar. Or sometimes that thing you left comes after you. This is what this parable of Jesus was getting at. How do you stay free? How do you live into your freedom? And what does that process even look like? The Exodus story that Ed read today for us, graciously, thank you for reading that very long text, is a story of a movement, a journey towards greater freedom. The children of Israel were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, that's the context. And now, after God demolishes Pharaoh's hold on them through 10 plagues, Israel is finally let go. Now, real quick, the reason the Bible draws on this story, the Exodus, to parallel slavery with sin. So, throughout the Bible, after the Exodus story, slavery, the Egyptians, uh, the Egyptians keeping Israel in slavery, and sin will be a parallel. And freedom from the slavery of sin will draw back to the Exodus story. 
And they map almost exactly. And I'm not being trite here. The Bible uses this language very specifically. Because to be in slavery means that you are under the rule of a system that is not built to bring you favor or flourishing. It is built to exploit and destroy you full stop. Slavery is a system that is built to to exploit a people group and destroy that people group. And from the Exodus account, we know this to be true. And so when we turn to the New Testament and see that sin is operating like a slave master, what that's saying is that sin is a system designed to destroy you like slavery, to keep you under its rule and to exploit you. That's on purpose. So that language, though, may be triggering to some of you, and it may be really hard to hear and listen to. It's there on purpose. And the thing behind the sin isn't just humanity's propensity to mess up, but what we learn from the Exodus narrative is there are also spiritual powers behind the systemic slavery of sin. Just like there were spiritual powers behind the slavery of Israel in Egypt. So when Yahweh was delivering Israel in the Exodus, God was not going after simply Pharaoh, but more specifically, he was going after the gods of Egypt, the Elohim of Egypt, if you remember from the very beginning of the series. So right after Passover, it says this in Exodus 12. God says, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. So really what was going on in Exodus was not just a judgment against Pharaoh and the way he was treating Egypt, but against the gods of Egypt. This is spiritual warfare. And after this, finally, Pharaoh lets Israel go. And they're free. Uh, Israel's finally freed from slavery. Slavery. And they start walking out, and they cross the border out of Egypt into their newfound freedom. I mean, imagine the joy of being under the tyranny of slavery and then finally just being set free. Almost unbelievable, the euphoria of being free. They're free. Well, they're almost free. And that's the point. You think they're free. You think you're free. Well, you're almost free. Actually, the departure of Egypt is not the end. It's only the beginning of a long struggle for for freedom and well-being. This is all of our freedom endeavors map over this 100%. You think you're free, well, you're kind of free. You're free and moving towards freedom. Because being free and remaining free is not easy. The Exodus shows us the beauty of like initial freedom and the reality of a progressive freedom, a freedom that's ongoing. And because of that, I believe the Exodus And this story shows us what it's like to be a follower of Jesus, a follower of Jesus coming out of spiritual bondage, coming out off of the allegiance to the powers and the principalities and um, being spiritually bound into a freedom. Being a Christian feels like having been set free from sin and death, but also at the same time, it feels like a long journey towards freedom. Being a Christian is being free and moving towards freedom at the same time. It's being free, I'm free in Christ, and moving towards freedom at the same time. And like in the Exodus, freedom is not easy. And one of the reasons it's not easy is that we have a very confused sense of what freedom is. Our understanding of freedom today is that we have the right to do what we want without social or moral constraint as long as there's consent or we don't harm anybody. Free to do what we want, 
free from rules and anyone telling me what to do. I'm free to be me, to do me, to let me, you know, freedom is just me. I just do me. But the late American author and secular prophet David Foster Wallace said at one time that the freedom to obey every impulse and gratify every desire seems to me a strange kind of slavery. We think it's freedom to do whatever we want, but David Foster Wallace says, well, actually, to be free to do anything you want all the time and follow every impulse and, every, and gratify every one of your desires is actually a really strange kind of slavery. In our culture, freedom is understood as merely being free from something, from oppression, from constraint, from moral standards that would seek to repress us. This aspect of liberation, as wonderful as it is, is only half of the story. What Exodus teaches us is not just freedom from, but freedom for. Freedom for worship, for flourishing, for growth in reliance on God. See, humanity was not designed to be free from all constraints. Slaves to nothing but our own passions and impulses, as David Foster Wallace says, that's actually a strange kind of slavery. The children of Israel are moving from serving an oppressive master to the liberating and living God, to serving the living God. The Exodus is not freedom from Pharaoh to whatever you want, go ahead and go and have fun. To pull Jesus' parable back into all this, freedom would only be half of the equation, only to be filled with a greater slavery at some point if you don't fill it with a new kind of obedience to something. Unless you fill the house with something good and you just leave the house free and empty, oh, there's seven of his friends are showing up. Real freedom is a journey from and for from oppression, for worship, and relying on God. And this is why freedom is harder than it looks. This is why sustaining the revolution of freedom is harder than it sounds. Because in our journey towards freedom, spiritual freedom, God has to teach Israel to trust him and not fall back to trusting that bad old master, Pharaoh. See, when we're free from something, we're free from something we're, we get addicted to, we, get, we, we rely upon. It, it gives us either emotional or euphoric or, or like endorphin hits. And when you're coming off of that thing, you have to learn and retrain yourself to get, to get reliant upon something else. Just like leaving any addiction, any destructive relationship, any damaging habit or disorder to serve and follow Jesus, it will be an arduous journey. Because God has to confront and break all of your old ways of clinging to false gods and idols and habits and systems and thought patterns. Now, how does God do this? How does this happen? We've taught, taught extensively and talked extensively on spiritual bondage and the demonic side. What does freedom look like? How do you actually get free and stay free? And I believe we learn this from our text. First thing we see is this. How does God teach us to live into our freedom as people who leave spiritual bondage or leave lives of sin into lives of um, reliance on God. What does God do? How does God do that? Well, first, this is what we see. God takes the long way around through the wilderness. How does God teach you the long way around through the wilderness. If you feel like there's a, a little, like um, maybe a, a, a light breaking through in your life, maybe something has like finally shifted in your life, or maybe this happened a long time ago, 
and you're like, now everything will be better, and you wake up the next day, and now you're on this longer road than you were before. You're like, what's up with this? This is what God does. Look at verse 17 in chapter 13. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. God, we're going to the promised land. We're going, it's a straight, if we just go right there, the straight shot, it's really easy. And God's like, no, 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 we're not going that way. Uh, if you go that way, you're going to face war, and you might change your minds. We're going to go that way. We're going to go through the desert road towards the Red Sea. See, God knows what he's doing when he leads us. Some, someone might need to hear this today. God knows what he's doing. If you find yourself in this wilderness, this like desolate place, you're like, I trusted God, and now I'm in this desolate place. God knows what he's doing. He knows how to get us from point A to point B, and he knows what he's doing while on the way to point A and point B. God's whole point isn't just to get you to, to point B. It's the journey and what he's doing to retrain you and teach you and shepherd you along the way. The journey is not just about Israel getting out of Egypt, but Egypt getting out of Israel. Do you know, you know what I'm saying? Do you get that? That's what's happening here. It's not just about getting into the promised land, but about getting the patterns and the addictions of Egypt out of Israel. God could have taken the direct route, straight shot from Egypt to Canaan, but he didn't, why? We're told that was because Israel, who had just left Egypt as free people, were fearful. They didn't know how to use their newfound freedom yet. They were inexperienced in how to defend their new freedom. They were apprehensive, and therefore God led them through a route that made no sense to them a route that would be longer and in some ways more dangerous than the shorter route. You probably have had this happen in your life, and you might just be right now putting your finger on that. You're like, oh, that's what God was doing? Yes, that's what God was doing. This happened in my own life, and Ash and I in our own marriage. Ash and I couldn't have kids for the longest time, 15 plus years of trying to have children, and we couldn't, and we could have during this time we could have done other things to help the process along. Other things that could have got us a child years ago, and some of these things, a lot of these things, like adoption, are amazing in their own way. They're miraculous, they're beautiful. They're all, I mean, the, the way to, to, to the, the fact that people can have children now that couldn't is insanely beautiful. But God told me years ago, I want you to go the long way around. If you adopt, or do something else, you will shortcut what I'm doing in your lives. It was very clear, the long, long, long road. I didn't understand it, I didn't like it, but it was, it was pretty clear to Ashley and I, this is what God was doing. And to be honest, this road that we were on, our marriage almost didn't make it. I almost didn't make it, she almost didn't make it. But then, somewhere along the 15, 16 year mark, there was insane mutual healing, and then babies after that. <laughs> Praise God, yes. And I share that story because if you've been a part of this church for the better part of 13 years, you've lived the majority of under kind of like my pastoral leadership with just this um, pain in my life, and where I could, I could really relate to people's pain because I had lived under so much of it myself, and wanting 
myself to give up, where I've looked people in the face and said, if, if I can't leave, you can't leave, deal? They're like, okay. I'm like, really? I'm serious. I won't leave if you won't leave. Sometimes this long way around is so hard that you want to give up. And actually, it, you're almost incentivized to give up along the way. But God said to us, we're going the long way around, not the direct route. And that was like the first, you know, 16, 17 years of our marriage. And I see the wisdom in it now. See, stories like this are not just stories that live like in the thin pages of our Bible. This is the way God leads. Often, the long way around through a wilderness to teach dependence and reliance and to undo things we picked up while we were enslaved, to teach us how to live in God's family and not just do what we learned in our families of origin. See, Israel is addicted to the cycle of um, harsh order, oppression, and then regular food supplied by the empire. That's, they were addicted to that, that cycle. Harsh order, oppression, and then regular food supply. That combination of order, abuse, and reward is really powerful, by the way. Like, this is... Um, <laughs> This is algorithm, basically. Um, this, is, this is what kind of keeps us addicted to all of our things. It's at the core of many of our addictions and disorders. From an eating disorder to abusive relationship, from workaholism to alcoholism, this is, the, this is the thing. First, you have order. You have a ritual. Whether it's an eating disorder of counting calories and working out or drinking, the ritual of going to a bar or making yourself a drink after work or maybe before work, I have no idea, or work, the ritual of going to work every single day and the money that it makes you and the prestige that it gives you to relationships of, of the ritual of waking up or coming home to your abuser. That's order. You know what to expect. Even though you don't like it, you know exactly what to expect. But then there's abuse. That thing that gives you order in your life also brings with it emotional abuse and physical abuse, and the abuse that it takes on your body and your family and your church community. But there's also reward, the way it makes your body look and feel, the award of achievement, the award of numbing out, the award, the reward of, um, of not being alone, even though the person that you're with is abusive, at least you're not alone. And that, that's a deathly dangerous cycle, you know, one that Israel was in for, for Years and years, generations. It was soul-crushing, but at least they knew what to expect. So God leads them right up to the Red Sea because his leadership is aimed at destroying Israel's death-dealing addiction. They think they're free, but they're not really free. So God leads them right up to the Red Sea because he's going to destroy this addiction. At the beginning of chapter 14, God tells Moses to go the long way around because he has a plan. God's plan was to lead Israel right up to the Red Sea and make it look like he doesn't know what he's doing. Like, oh my gosh, this God of theirs led him right up to the Red Sea. This God is not smart. We're just, let's go get them. And the plan is Pharaoh will see that Israel is going the wrong way right up to the Red Sea and then God will harden his heart and make him mad that everyone left and he'll go after Israel all to, because he wants to finish them off uh, because he thinks they're stuck, and the plan works perfectly. Pharaoh sees that Israel is lost and confused in the wilderness and is headed right to the Red Sea, stuck, hemmed in, no place to go. So then he goes after them. I'm not letting you go. You, you can't go from me. Verse 7, he took 600 of his best chariots along with the other chariots of Egypt with officers all around them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. 
The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea. Imagine if you were Israel. You're walking. You're free. But then you make a right when you should make a left. And you're like, I thought we were going that way. And God's like, no, we're going to go that way. And you're like, but that's like to the ocean. And God's like, yeah, that's where we're going. And right when you're, you get to the shore and there's no place to go, Verse 10, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. And they were terrified, and they cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, was it because there are no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Israel here is caught between two masters, two loyalties, two allegiances, two lovers. Israel is caught between their abuser and their freedom. And at the side of these chariots, notice, their old life kicked right in. Their addictions, their coping mechanisms, they wanted to go back. They wanted to surrender to what enslaved them. They know it was bad back in Egypt. They know it was dehumanizing to live in Egypt, but at least it was predictable. They could predict the future with Egypt. They would be abused. They would be used for their labor. They would be fed, and then they would die. At least they knew what to expect. But this new thing called freedom and Yahweh, what do I do with that? How do I even know what to do with that? It seems freedom has led to the stupidest place on earth, a place where there's no way out. See, one of the reasons it's very difficult to sustain freedom is because you lose all of the benefits of the old system well before there are any tangible benefits from what is promised. Let me say this again. This is really, really important. The reason why it's difficult to to stay free is because you lose all the benefits of the old life, the old system, way before there's any tangible benefits from what is promised to you. This happens with so many of our addictions and enslavements. We leave behind work, workaholism, and we don't get the benefit of a rested, integrated soul. That comes a lot later. So you break the habit of workaholism, and then you're just nervous all the time. Am I gonna have enough money? What am I doing with my life? Does anyone even know that I'm here? Does anyone, can anyone see my work? Oh my gosh, what am I, and you just, you get nervous. You, you left it so you can have an integrated soul, but that comes a lot later. We leave behind our addictions to pornography. We leave behind our addictions to pornography and we leave behind the rush and the quick, cheap intimacy that pornography brings, but we're stuck in the middle. We have to relearn what true intimacy is. You don't, live, you don't leave pornography and all of a sudden you're good. You probably feel that the intimacy, that you, the cheap thrill of intimacy is gone, but what is gonna, you have to relearn true intimacy and that takes years to learn. You're like, wait, this takes too, too long. I'll just go back to my old life. And we look back. We think maybe we should go back to the cheap stuff. All the while, we're stuck on the shores of the Red Sea, and there's no way forward. Israel has left behind Egypt, but has no real tangible benefit to what, what is promised yet. And they're there, stuck in the middle. And in verse 10, it says, they were terrified, and they cried out to the Lord. You know what's interesting? They didn't cry out to the Lord. It says they cried out to the Lord, but they didn't cry out to the Lord. And the reason why they didn't is because they didn't know how to cry out to the Lord. 
The only name they could utter was the name of Egypt. Did you catch that? And they cried out to the Lord. And so on the shore they said the name of Egypt five times and the name of Yahweh zero. There were no graves in Egypt. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Uh, you could, we could have stayed in Egypt. Let us serve Egypt. It's better for us to serve Egypt. Over and over and over again, the name of Egypt was on their lips. Why? Because it's the only name they knew. The, the, the name upon which they rely was the only name they have forcefully learned to call out to. See, in verse 10, it says they cried out to the Lord, but they didn't, they didn't know how to cry out to God. They didn't know what that looked like. The name on their lips was Egypt, 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 Egypt. So God takes Israel the long way around and brings them right up to the Red Sea because he has to reteach them. Sometimes when we leave, when we get freedom, we get stuck with the Red Sea in front of us and an army behind us, and we think, why? Why did, why did I leave my old life behind? Why did I leave that relationship? Why did I leave that habit? I could really use a drink right now. I can really use the, the, the cold pseudo-intimacy of pornography. And you feel stuck in this middle place, and sometimes the only thing you can think of is the thing that you know, your past. And this is the perfect time, by the way, to learn to trust in a new name, which is in God's wisdom here. He has to teach them what it really means that God could be dependent upon, that they can't rely, they can actually rely on him. God can be trusted. What it means that God will actually fight for you. And as Israel is backed up against the Red Sea, there's only two options, they think. We can become slaves again, or we can die. So they choose slavery. Let's just go back. But Moses finally steps in and says, don't forget about God. You can't factor God out of this equation. Your equation is wrong. It's not just you and your captors. It's not just you and your problems. God is a part of this, and watch what God will do. And so Moses has to bring the name of God back into the equation because Egypt is the only name on their lips. And so it says in verse 13, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Now, um, not to make this too glossy, because that, that whole thing of all you need to do is be still is not this like um, be still and know that I am God meditation verse. He's not asking um, you just to be still and take a breath, do your breathing prayer right now, and just calm down. He, the, the, word, uh, the word literally means um, shut up. <laughs> you need to shut up. Because you're swirling. You're swirling, you're swirling. And you think God is not here. You just need to s s shut up. Stop talking and look at God. This is kind of an aggressive word where where they just are spinning out. Moses says to them, calm down and watch. Pay attention. Notice that there's another presence in your crisis that you had neither noticed nor acknowledged. The Lord is here, and this is what the Lord says. Then the Lord said to Moses, verse 15, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so the Israelites can go through on dry ground. Move. God just says, why, why, why? Keep, did I tell you to stop? Keep going. Like, well, there's ocean. Yeah, I know. Keep going. Don't get stuck here. I'll do something there. You just keep going. 
David Mamet, the film director, author, and playwright, said in a commencement speech once, we all die in the end, but there's no reason to die in the middle. You will die in the end, but just don't die here. Keep moving. God is saying, don't die in the middle. You're free, but you're not free yet. Keep going. Walk into the sea. And God parts the sea, and the Red Sea saves Israel, but destroys Egypt. Saves Israel, but destroys Egypt, which is um, a foreshadowing of the cross of Jesus. Saves humanity, destroys the things that bind us. Same thing. Saves one, destroys the other. Verse 31, and when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and Moses, his servant. Listen, now they trust in the Lord. Now, after all of that, the name on their lips is the Lord. They had to learn this. See, we have, um, in the West, we think that, that to know something is to intellectually grasp it. But the, the, the Hebraic understanding of knowledge is to experience it. And so it's one thing to know that you're free and to know that Christ is the Lord and to know that you're a Christian, but that's not enough. It's not intellectual assent. It's not checking a box that, oh, do you believe that? Check. It's not that. It's that you experience it in your body, that you take a step in faith and you have to trust God. It's like God or nothing, like either God's doing this or I'm going to die. That's when the knowledge becomes moves from just intellectual pursuit to embodied and lived in. Now they knew how to trust in God. They knew it in their bodies. This is why freedom is a journey. This is why, this is one of the best pictures that we have of the Christian life. We are free people who are moving towards greater freedom. This is why in the New Testament, this account is used to draw an analogy between what happened to Israel at the sea and what happens to the Christian in baptism. 1 Corinthians 10, for I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, this is the cloud that led them in in the Exodus, and that they all passed through the sea, the Red Sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Paul is saying that going through the water for Israel was their baptism. And like our baptism as Christians, it's about leaving behind an old way of life, an old allegiance to a new allegiance, a life of bondage to sin and death and entering into a new mode of existence. It's a move towards trust. It's a move towards dependence. It's a move towards greater and greater freedom in Christ as we submit to his leadership. Being a Christian is moving out of one country into another, the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. It's a switch of allegiances, which is why baptism is spiritual warfare. We can, we can now, we, we, Maybe this might be coming up for you. you. You might be tempted right now to go, I'm gonna get re-baptized. How can I sign up for that baptism class? I'm gonna do this right now. Listen, if, if you were baptized as a consenting, willful, pers- conscience, conscious person, meaning you weren't, you weren't forced to as, a, as an infant, though, though I have nothing against that. I think that's beautiful. Um, 
I do. I honestly do. I baptize my children as infants. My hope is that they will consent to a willful baptism one day, that they will say, I will follow Jesus. See, infant baptism is a way of saying, we accept you no matter what. You did nothing to deserve this. We bring you into the family of God. And we pray that one day you will step into faith yourself. That's, that's, that's my paradigm, by the way. It probably doesn't map over your paradigm, but that's my paradigm. Now, if you've been, will, you, were, you were baptized willfully. If you said, yes, I did. I was 12, I was nine, I was 15, I was 104, whatever, however old you were. If you willfully, you don't have to be baptized again. Actually, we will try, if you go through our baptism class, we'll try to weed you out. And were you, well, how old were you when baptized? 16. But I, but I, did, I did drugs after that. Cool. Let's repent. <laughs> this will ha- it happens all the time. This is why we don't baptize 50 people a year. It's like people are just like, I, well, it's my fifth time being baptized, and this church is like, I want to make my profession of faith. Like, no, just you're baptized. What you need to do is remember your baptism. <laughs> remember. See, I think the Catholic faith and the Orthodox Christian faith have s- something really good where they put holy water at the door, and you're to dip your finger in there. And then cross yourself in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know how the words that were spoken over you when you were baptized? I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's remembering your baptism. It's remembering that your allegiance is to Jesus. That your whole life, your whole life is one of continuing to leave the old life, leave old bondages, leave old sin patterns, and then trust and hope in God. And so this morning, we have some uh, bowls of water that are out. And we would love if you would participate in remembering your baptism. If you're like, right now, you're like, I want to be rebaptized. You can, right here, just remember it. If you were baptized before, just remember your baptism. So we have two in the front. So if you want to come forward and remember your baptism, now you don't have to cross yourself. You're like, no, 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 that's too triggering. I'm just, I won't, it won't be good for me. Then just dip your finger in it. It's totally cool. If you're like, what about COVID? There's hand sanitizer there too. So you have no excuse. No excuse. You can, you can cross yourself and say in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or you could just dip your fingers in it and just remember, thank God that you were baptized. You can remember the day you were baptized. I remember that you are someone who's baptized and you are in Christ. Or we have them in front of the, 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 the communion table as well. So if before you receive communion, if you want to come up and remember your baptism and then hold your hands out to receive communion, that's what we'll be doing this morning. So they're all there. It's, it's all there set up for you. Would you stand with me as we, as we close in prayer?